Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. I was able to speak with a talented, driven individual who has forged a career to becoming one of football's most highly credible and recognizable reporters. We talk about her journey, mindset, working in a male-dominated environment, and what it takes to become successful as she strives to be better tomorrow than today. Episode 15, Alison Bender. So yeah, so it's the other day, we were like practically neighbours. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? Yeah, I, um, so Charlie was telling me that you used to live across the road from him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were blessed. I mean, that, that family has been so good to us over the years. But um, we used to get Valentine's cards every year, anonymous from the boys. And it was really sweet because Kathy would do it, their mum, just so that we would just feel loved every year. They would like always put like a question mark. And I think it was only like after about a decade that we found out that it was from them. Oh, that's, that's cool. I mean, I used yeah. to go around there at Christmas and every year I used to get a stock in. Every Aww. year. I mean, it was, the presents were pretty crap, but like, and Kathy used to know they were crap. Because it was just the tat that she would collect throughout the year. Yeah. It made a point of it. And I was devastated one year when I went round and there was no stocking. She went, I thought he was too old for it. I was like, nah, I still want, I still want exactly. that. Like you get used to it, don't you? But she's I mean, she's got a heart of gold. She's absolutely lovely. She's like the hostess so, with the most ass, isn't she? So, I know. I always remember her pudding cupboard. <laughs> so sorry, um, sorry you can't watch Arsenal, by the way. Um, I'm gonna try and get to it later anyway in the second half. But um are you a big fan? Nah, I, I don't know. It's uh, yeah, I, I used to be, but I just, I just, I'd love to get hold of that team. I'd love to get, I'd, uh, you know, for, I'd do it for free, to, no, no dramas, and just get in there and uh, try and instill a little bit of grit in the team. I think is probably what they're missing. They just need a little bit of. Uh, they, they've never recovered since losing Patrick Vieira, I think. So. Um, yeah, you know, that type of player. I don't think they've ever really had it since. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens tonight. I'm not I'm not holding my breath. So uh, it is what it is. But I hear that you was a bit of a break dancer in, in your day as well. So when I was at Bristol Uni, um, I, got, I, I got into it randomly and actually loved it because then I started hanging out with the locals rather than just students. And I just really, really fell for it in a big way. Like everything I do, I kind of throw myself into it. Um, and so I, I became quite obsessed with it, to be honest, almost like to the detriment of everything else. I just did it all the time. And then when I found out Charlie was doing it, I'd go around his house and do a bit of breaking as well. I was never that good, but I was, I was a lot better at teaching it, actually. No, but he said, he said to me that um, he used to love it because there was like this older, good looking girl who used to come around the house and break dance. So all the lads used to really like it. So they'd be like, Charlie, when we come around your house again, Charlie, when we come around. And so that was, uh, I don't know if he's ever said that, but now we know. Oh, hilarious. No, so what did you do at funny. Bristol Uni then? Uh, psychology. Yeah. Oh, really? So I really love, I, yeah, I'm really interested in psychology. And I did my, my dissertation was on autism. And I'm really, really interested in how different minds work. And I spent, I spent like almost a year in a special autistic school, a very, very, um, focused, incredibly brilliant school that has obviously all different levels, but generally severe autistic, uh, severely autistic children, and oh, it's just fascinating. So I did, I did my whole dissertation on that, and I thought I was going to go down that route. To be honest, I was thinking about staying with psychology and being a counsellor, and I did, I did various jobs in Kingston. Believe it or not, I did a job in Kingston. No joke. I was a, I was like an outreach worker. And I worked in four clubs, so you'll know. I worked in Options, Vaults, Bacchus and um, Ritzy on a Friday night. And I worked until midnight or one or something as, a, as an outreach worker. So watching out for people who had basically OD'd and making sure I was kind of like an undercover drugs officer. And then at the end of the night, I'd go back to this, um, the soup kitchen, which is in, right by Tiffin Boys. And that was open like all night long. And I would go and do counseling sessions for anyone who wanted to drop in. So, but was, I mean, it was a mental job for someone of my age. I was only like, I don't know, 25 or something. And I was counseling drug addicts. I was counseling all the people on the methadone project. I was, I was counseling like homeless. I was counseling girls that have been like raped and stuff. And I was like, 
this is far too big for me. Like, I, I don't have the training for this. I, I was given like minimal training, um, but it was just brilliant and I loved it. And I always thought I'm going to go and get some more life experience and maybe I'll come back to it. Sorry, did you ever go back to um, working in the autism area at all? I am. Um, I mean, I sympathise obviously with the child, but I massively sympathise with the parents as well, because obviously, you know, autism has so many different uh, manifestations, but there are certain things where, um, you know, you read this kind of like book of parenting, right? And it's all wrong. If you have a child who has autism, for example, if you've got someone who's got PDA, I don't know if you know about that, but like, you know, it might look to anyone else like uh, a naughty child, basically, who's just not doing the right thing. But if you tell them off like you would like, you know, a normal child, um, they're going to get worse. And actually, if you treat them in the way that the PDA specialists say, you suddenly see that child get better. So but it's very hard to get that, A, to get the diagnosis and B, to get people around you supporting it because people will be like, oh, you know, I think I know how to do, deal with this. So, so um, speaking with a play therapist and... Yeah. It's really interesting because I think every every parent should go to see a play therapist anyway, yeah. because it's like it was a revelation. And I thought, oh, no, it's all right. You know, we've got it. We've got this sussed. And there was things that she would say where she would say things like um, when when she has an eruption, if you tell her off, what you're doing is you're confirming to her that her emotion isn't valid. But actually, what you're really doing, you're telling her off about the action. So the way that you should approach it is that, um, one, to make sure they're safe. And then secondly, to say, um, to lead in to say, I can understand why you feel frustrated and I would be angry too, but it's not all right to hit your brother. Yeah. Or, do you see what I mean? So Exactly. Exactly. No, it sounds perfect. Like my, my best friend does play therapy. Um, she's a psychologist. And she does, um, she did a whole big course on it. And exactly that is validating that behavior and stuff is so important. And, it, you know, well done for you. Like you're a brilliant parent for doing that because so many parents just don't think it's, you know, my dad is so flipping old fashioned and he's like, um, you know, oh, all these words, all these things. And I'm like, dad, you've, you know, you live in a completely different era. You've got to, you've got to accept this. Yeah, and I think, like, certainly with younger children, they don't really, they don't know bad behavior. You know, they, no, they, they exactly. don't, they just, they, they, their behavior is their behavior, but it's influenced by us. And actually, what I've seen is that her, her, her behavior has improved by validating her feelings, which is Good. something oh, I was good. like, wow, that's, that's really strange thing. But we were, you know, also speaking to a, um, one of the school Senkos who is is autistic and she I didn't even know this existed and it was something called introspection so it's um the, the fear that not being able to feel something inside and so she doesn't know when she's getting hot so when when she's she used to get really angry when she was like sweating like getting overheated overheating but she didn't know she was overheating so she learned strategies like when I feel water on my forehead, I need to take my jumper off because that means I'm hot. But she didn't right. feel hot. And mm. I was like, that was just mind blowing to think. Wow. Hold on. And then she went on to say, like, some kids don't feel like feel when they need to go to the toilet. So when you get older, you learn strategies like I need to go to the toilet every half an hour just in case when you're older. You know, you say yeah, it yeah. looks like wow. it's normal. And I'm like, mind blown. I didn't even know that yeah. existed. Yeah, and it's quite, really it's quite common. Yeah, really common. Really. And she just, like you say, she just wants to be heard. So it must be very frustrating. Um, but yeah, the fact that you're saying, you know, it's okay, you feel like this. And I understand you feel like this. However, that is the way, that is definitely the way forward. But yeah, you just have to, it's good that you've got people that know what they're talking about. It's just, yeah, but it's, oh, it's, it's hard it is work. A, it is, a, is a, because not, especially with girls, Autism research is done off of boys. It's based yes. on boys. And it's so true. girls are completely different yeah. in every which way. Girls are far more intelligent than boys socially. Yeah. And their emotional intelligence, even at a young age, is, is far superior, probably anyway, than, than the male species, you know, full stop. But and she'll, mimic, age, she'll mimic stuff, won't she? That, she, so that she, hides, so, she, yeah. she will hide at school, whereas boys play up at school. So when it comes to like referrals, you have to go through school to do it. So if they don't see it happening yeah. if that, and it's like, oh, come on. Like, exactly. so um, yeah, it's quite challenging. 
the, my whole project, by the way, was about um, not writing off people. Like, so like basically when you have autism, a lot of people are like, well, you know, this is what you should do. This is a career for you. And then there are like these amazingly intelligent autistic children that have been really let down. And so my, my whole point was like, you've got to find what they're really good at and, you know, encourage um, people with autism to go into these careers that are going to see them shine because they're brilliant. But it's like about, you know, just understanding and diagnosing early and that kind of thing. So I, I loved it. But I haven't got back to it, but maybe one day, who knows? No, fair. But I think that strategy should be used anyway, targeting yeah. the people's strengths and, and employing them and trying to like guide them into areas of their strengths, not just generic. You know, that, that's surely the, the way yeah, to yeah. go anyway. But so how did you go from psychology and and dealing with people that were ODing um, and counselling into the area that you're in now, which is basically media? That's a bit of a career change, is it not? Was it, is it, was it an overnight thing? Or, I mean, what was the pull factor into, into that field? Yeah, so when I was um, at school from a really, really young age, I knew I wanted to be a presenter, like, straight away, um, from, I think, about age 10. And so I almost kind of did everything towards trying to get that career. And um, when I spoke to my teachers, they were like, you know, you can't do that. It's a ridiculous profession like you won't earn any money and they actually said pick something from the box and they had this box and it didn't have tv presenter in it and they they did this thing called jig cal back then I don't know if you had it but you sort of fill out a load of boxes and stuff about um that you answer various questions and then it comes out of a computer and tells you what job that you should do and mine came out with chiropodist do you know the one so I came out with chiropodist and I was like this is ridiculous this machine's ridiculous I like I don't even like touching feet like what um, and so I was just really insistent that, that I wanted to do presenting. And so I actually asked my teacher at the time, okay, maybe I'll change my mind, but what degree can I do? That is, they told me to do a proper academic degree. I said, what can I do? That's a degree that if I do decide, I still want to be a presenter that I can use that towards. And I remember my, my teacher at the time, she said, psychology is a really good all round one because you can kind of take it anywhere. And a lot of people do go into the media. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. Um, so I went off to university, but still always in the back of my mind was, I want to be a presenter. That, that's exactly what I want to why, do. Why was that though? Why, what was it about that that attracted you to that profession? So for me, it was like, it, it was, it's just, it was one of those funny things. So I went to the Ideal Home exhibition um, years ago with my mum and they had this like news reading stand basically. And I sat down and I had to like read the weather and the news with an autocue. And, you know, it was just a day out with my mum and I sat down and I did it. And of course the woman was like, oh, wow, this, I was 10 years old. And she was like, wow, this girl's natural. And you know what, just hearing that praise, it was just like, oh, and I was, I was terrible by the way, because I've seen the video since. And I was, it was, I was so bad, but she was just being really nice. And it was, and I thought, oh, you know, and it gave me a kind of an idea in my mind. And so then from that point on, and that's why actually now I do career talks, I go into schools, I speak to 10 year olds. And I kind of think it's really important to give people something to be excited about. I mean, you don't have to know what you want to do from age 10. But you know what, for me, it really helped because then every single thing, I feel there's a lot of pressure on young kids, they always ask what they want to be, and they don't know, and then they get really anxious about it. And I actually think it's worth just knowing something that you like, and then going down that pathway. And you know, as you know, there's always twists and turns and things change but it's really nice to have a passion. And so that was always my passion. So even like all throughout university, I did think about counseling. I thought about all the things that would naturally go with psychology, but I also was applying at the same time to TV companies. And, and I just thought that whichever opportunity kind of came first, I would, I would do it. And I actually had a bit of a crossroads. So when I graduated university, I was offered two jobs. One was to stay at university and to do a research project on autism. And the other one was to um, enter a TV company. And I was just like, so excited about the TV thing. It was, it was coming back to London where I lived, um, where my parents were, and it was working in a big newsroom. And I just loved the buzz of a newsroom. Um, and I have to say, I was, it was way over my head. I went in there with really, really smart people who had, you know, all of them had a couple of degrees and I, I felt way out of my depth. I remember everyone, I had to read the FT, the Financial Times, every single day and give a report on it. And I found it really uncomfortable and really quite embarrassing. But I still weirdly had this thing that I wanted to be on TV. And I was actually quite shy. 
Why was it uncomfortable? It's a weird one because I was actually really, really quite shy. And every time I read aloud or spoke, I'd go bright red. Um, and yet, so, it, so it's bizarre. It's not very fitting that I wanted to be a TV presenter at all. But actually during that, that time, I thought, I just loved TV. So I thought either I'll be a TV presenter or a producer, like make TV or a director, even though I didn't really know what director was, but I just loved the idea of being in this TV company um, and directing things. Um, and so actually once I started in the, in the, big newsroom I kind of thought you know what producing is more my thing and I sat in edit suites for hours and I loved editing I loved just putting tv together um but it, it actually came a little bit later when I kind of rekindled my love and my desire to present because I was basically writing all the scripts and working really really hard and putting the show together and the presenter would basically rock up which is basically what I do now rock up really late grab my scripts I spent all night writing sit down have her hair and makeup done sit on screen not not that I'm belittling the job obviously it's difficult but she'd sit there for two hours and then she'd go home and she'd be back home before I'd even left the office and probably earning about three or four times the amount I was and I remember thinking I've done all the hard work here like maybe I could be a presenter after all and so I, I spoke to my bosses and I said, look, will you give me a go? And they screen tested me and they said I was terrible. They were like, no, it's, you're, you're too young. Your voice is too high pitched. You don't have any gravitas. What does a screen test look like? What does that mean? So you basically sit, you're kind of pretending. It's quite funny. It's like dress up your... So I used to wait till my colleagues were basically offset. So they'd just come off the air and you sit down on the very same set, which always felt, felt really good. And I always remember I'd go in that day, I'd bring like a jacket or something um, and some lipstick and try and look a bit older than I was. And um, yeah, you basically sit there and the autocue appears in front of you. So you, you start reading the autocue as if you're presenting the news. I mean, the first thing my boss said to me was I was very monotone and I was just literally reading. And he said, you know, you have to almost be like 20% more. So, you know, bring yourself up at the beginning of sentences and then go down. And, you know, so he gave me some sort of tips and tricks. And I would literally do that every day when I, when I was able to, um, at the end of a shift, I'd say, well, can I sit down? And it was embarrassing because the whole newsroom would tune in, basically. So they'd see you, but there was also a TV channel at each de desk. And they would all, I could hear them. They were like, oh, Alison's doing a screen test, like number six, and have a bit of a giggle. Um, but I just was so stubborn. I just knew I wanted to do it. And I just thought, and I could see I was getting better. I knew I was getting better. So I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And I always thought they would give me a chance and they never did. And so one day I just said to them, I really want to, I really want to do this. I'm going to leave and go elsewhere and, and be a presenter. And they begged, begged me to stay because I was a good producer. I'd been there six years. And they said, look, please stay and be a producer. And we'll let you go off and do freelance work elsewhere and you can chase your career, but still stay with us. And so I kind of, I was really lucky because I basically had a bit of both. So I was able to kind of pay my bills, pay my rent and have a proper job. And then I applied for just like hundreds and hundreds of jobs for presenting just to kind of try and um, go down that route. And I gave myself a one year experiment, I'm sure, loads of people kind of do this so you're like right I'm gonna have one year and if it doesn't work out then I'll stick with producing and I'm happy I like producing but I just have to I just have to see I just wanted to sort of see if I could do it where did that where does that mindset come from I I often think about this like for me I I think that um I've, I've always felt a little bit um not as talented as people around me in everything so like you know I loved gymnastics growing up and I poured such hard work into it I worked every day and there were kids that only did it like once a week and they were better than me and I did it every single day of the week and I wasn't as good so I always felt I had to work a little bit harder than everyone else but I always knew that I could get to the same level as them but I just would have to work harder and the same with school um, I went to a really academic school Tiffin Girls which is a, a grammar school you know you have to pass your 11 plus um, and I didn't pass my 11 plus. I, I got in on like a second sweep or whatever. So just from day one, I was always less clever than everyone else. And I, I knew that. And I didn't even tell people actually, but I knew of this school of, I don't know, this year of a hundred people, I knew I was bottom, but yet I had to be the same as them. And so I just worked and, and it's just been my, my, 
entire mentality, like every single thing I do in life, I just pour a lot of hard work because I just know I'm not super smart. Like, I, you know, I have a lot of friends, Oxbridge friends, and I can tell their brains just work a little bit differently. They're, they're, they're sharper, they're quicker, they're, they're quicker on the uptake. Um, but I just, I, I, like, I like the narrative because I kind of think, you know, just because you're not as clever or as good, it doesn't mean you can't do it. And that's what I've kind of been telling other people as well. Um, and you just, I got there eventually, basically. So, so a lot of kids at school will, will think the same. So were there any variables that you can think back to that you would recreate again, that were like foundations of why you were, you, you put the hard work in? Because a lot of kids would walk away from that and do walk away going, oh, I'm just not that good, so I'm not going to try. But you didn't do that. It's weird. I, so I did it all for me. So I have to say I had a very, very laid back parents. They never put any pressure on me finan- um, financially or, you know, or um, academically or anything. They just, in fact, you know what, I don't, I don't think they knew what I was doing half the time. I just go into my room. And so I put all the pressure on myself. But I remember like, I just have always been a bit nerdy. Like, um, I remember I had, I had a wall chart when I was like 10 years old that I made for myself. And it literally had um, it was like a grid and it had an X for an hour, a star for half an hour, 10 minutes was a whirly gig and five minutes was a circle. And every time I'd go into my bedroom and sit on my desk, I would just do a bit of work and then exit off. And then I had all my subjects and then I would look at them. So I'd be like, oh gosh, physics. God, I've hardly, I've hardly done anything for physics because chemistry has got like 20 stars in it. So I've got to do a bit more physics. And so you know, I, I did have these really quirky little traits, I suppose, but no one ever had to tell me to go and do my homework. I would just, that, that I had this chart and I just, you know, and I, I think as well, it's fear of, of doing badly. So I would, everyone's so different, aren't they? But for me, there is no way I would have ever let myself sit any exam with the panic and the fear that I didn't know it. So I always made sure that like, whether it was GCSEs or whether it was before that, I was always entering that exam like just busting with knowledge so I'd like you know I'd stay up really late the night before my parents maybe even put me to bed and I'd wake up in the night and just like work because I just I couldn't bear that fear and I and then we all had friends like it who just didn't give a damn they go into the exam wouldn't they and they just sit there and they'd be like if they can do it they can do it or you know we all have smart friends who just just aced it without working but that wasn't me I was always just I yeah I had to make sure that I knew it and it was usually last minute cramming, um, which actually is a lot like presenting. It's cramming. I basically like I love it. I kind of laugh to myself because I think I've chosen a career that is like what my entire life has been like. So like cramming for an exam and like, you know, if I'm if I'm on the radio later on, I'll sit there and I'll cram and make sure I know everything that I need to know. And then boom, it all comes out. Short term knowledge. A lot of it's gone the next day. But um, yeah, that's that's just how I've always been. So did you ever have a fear of failure? Was it, or, or did you, or was the fear of failure what drove you? Yeah, exactly. I think so. And I don't know whether that's because I went to this really academic school where everyone got A's and, you know, it, I mean, to be honest, it, anything other than an A, I suppose a B was acceptable, but a C was never acceptable in my not, school, which is not terrible. Girls, no, I mean, which is really sad, isn't it? But like that's, maybe that's what kind of created that mindset. But yeah, there was always fear of failure. Um, Definitely in my presenting career, there's always been a fear of messing up live on air. Like, it's weird. I'm amazed I never really have. <laughs> I've had a couple of, I mean, we've all had our, you know, absolute shockers where you just think, oh, that, that wasn't good. But I don't think I've had like a, you know, the, the thing that I'm fa- the thing that I'm fearing, um, whatever that might be, I haven't really had that. Um, so yeah, I suppose you just always kind of, making sure that that you always give the best account of yourself I suppose so where did your first presenting job come from yeah so while I was kind of on this experiment of trying to find presenting work um I, I went into I applied for a shopping channel actually um which a lot of people laughed at because I'd come from this business news channel which was very serious um but the shopping channel were giving me on-air experience and they were saying we'll give you that job so I was like yeah great and it's the hardest job ever because you've got to basically speak about pots and pans and fluffy towels for about an hour live. 
Um, so it's really, really hard. And I, I absolutely loved it, to be honest. But um, I could also see that it was just giving me that on-air experience and I was able to kind of speak in front of the camera. But then following that, I think the, the, the sort of, I suppose, my big break, you could say, was I applied for a job at Real Madrid TV, um, the football channel based in Spain. Um, and they were looking for someone to actually launch the channel. So they wanted a producer as well as a presenter. So it was perfect because I ticked both boxes because I'd done the producing and I'd done a little bit of presenting by then. So I always, that's another thing I always tell people. It's like, you know, your journey's so important because if I suppose if I hadn't done any of that producing, I never would have got that gig and it was the best gig in the world. And I, you know, I moved abroad. I got a one-way ticket, 26 years old, just went out to Madrid, um, not knowing how long I'd be out there to launch this channel. And it was just like the best experience of my life. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. And they say when you're out of your, outside your comfort zone, you grow the most. And I grew in that two years. I just learned so much. I absolutely loved it. So a lot of football clubs have these TV channels. So what's the basic premise behind them? What are they for? So, I mean, it's for your diehard fan. And so what I love about it is you, you've got to assume that the person watching is basically going to know everything about that club and care about everything about that club. So it's literally like, you know, it's so funny, actually. I've never thought about this, but you're right. It, it, that job couldn't be more perfect for me. It's it's kind of nerds TV, basically. People like people that, you know, that really care about the club and want to know everything about it. And I loved that because that was another opportunity for me to just throw myself into like mass research. Um, so, yeah, I learned everything about that football club that I could and read all the history books and everyone's autobiography and then every day we'd make news programs we'd go to the training grounds and show obviously the, the players training and interview the players but there was also a lot of history of the club as well so you know it was like no stone unturned basically we did you know everything about the the, the, the club and the club's history and it was right on my street I loved it what was it like seeing the Bernabeu for the first time yeah it was so magical like I, I still say it's one of the best stadiums in world football it's it's just beautiful it's really classy I mean obviously working in La Liga it was really hot as well so you'd watch games in the the first half would be kind of as a sun setting the second half it's just kind of dusky and warm and it was lovely so it was a very different experience coming back to the Premier League but I mean I really fell in love with football then I'd always been a kind of a fan by fault of my by fault by proxy my dad was a big Chelsea fan so he brought me up as a Chelsea fan and he loved football but I've always said I was a really girly girl and I wasn't that interested in football because we just we weren't allowed to play at school um we weren't taught it so I did you know I definitely wasn't any good at it and so again it was something that I had to learn um and had to become passionate about which was easy because it was just such a brilliant place to to be passionate about football and so I guess I came quite late into it into the love of football but then I just became hooked and then at that point I was like even though the obsession had been television I suddenly realized everything else had been like a bit of a stepping stone but suddenly I was like right this is what I was made to do like football and football presenting is exactly my thing. So is the is the reality of football the same as what we would see on the tv? There's, um, there's a lot of politics. It's sad. It's almost like, you know how they say you should never meet your heroes. I'd also maybe say you should never work for the football club you support because, you know, you do see some, you see the fact that it's a business. You see the fact that there's another side to it. Um, and it's it's a weird thing as well. Like, so if, if you're around a football ground, a training ground as well after a, a defeat like the mood and the atmosphere just stinks it's just a horrible place to be people are just really agitated because it's just so important particularly when you're talking about Premier League or La Liga it's just like there's so much money involved so it can be quite a toxic environment I suppose um, but at the same time it's just a massive privilege because you know that no one else gets to see this stuff so like if you're invited to watch a training session and you know that no other journalist is able to see that. That feels really special. And so one thing I always did from the start, and I'm so pleased I did it, was I took meticulous notes from every single training session I ever attended. And some of them are like ridiculously boring. Like you'll just open my notebook and it's just a list of players and exactly what they were doing. But some years down the line, I love just going back into those diaries and just having a look. And it's like great nostalgia. 
and some quite nice little tactics as well. <laughs> you know, the change in mood in terms of um, women's football and females in that sport is probably slightly different to when you started in out in in football. So how was it? How was that that experience? Do you know, it really wasn't that weird. So when I when I went to work for Real Madrid, I always say this, I never really noticed that I was a woman working in football, to be honest. It was um, Real Madrid TV was pretty balanced, actually. There were a lot of women there who loved football, who were passionate about football, um, and it didn't feel like a strange thing at all. There was a team of six of us, so three, uh, three girls, three boys. Um, so it felt just completely normal, actually. Um, and also because I was a presenter, so it was very much... Um, I don't know, you're, you're on screen. So to me, there had to be representation from both sexes. I think when I noticed it most was when I came back to Premier League. And when I came back to the Premier League, and I suppose when I started going to matches and I was in the press room and I was the only girl there, um, or one of very few girls, and I definitely started dressing differently. I'd been out in Madrid and I'd had a stylist and they always put me in high heels and sharp suits and hair and makeup and all the rest of it and when I came back I was like in jeans boots big coats trying to look as masculine as possible trying to blend in um, and it's sad in a way because I was on camera and I should have wanted to look nice but I just I wanted to just blend in I didn't want anyone and people weren't that kind like you know some of the journalists and some of the broadcasters that you know nobody kind of took me under their wing no one was really that friendly it was almost it was very doggy dog and I kind of had to sort of bit by bit gain their trust I suppose and show them that I'm serious I'm not just using this as a stepping stone this is something I know about um and that's the thing I think as a female you definitely feel like you have to earn your stripes they would always like ask a question and you'd think it was loaded like what did you make of that first half or what did you think of his performance and you always felt like you were being judged on whatever your answer was it didn't feel like it was just a question did you know that you were changing your appearance and, and that you changed your maybe the way that you were from Spain to England? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I made, I made a point of it. Like I'd go, I'd go to reach into my bag to put my lipstick on and I'd think, oh, I can't do that here. I can't do that in public. Whereas now I'd, I'd do it. I wouldn't, you know, I'm like, why, why, I did, why was that though? What was the, what stopped you from doing it? Because I think it was just there's a sort of a perception isn't there of you know she's a girl who's into how she looks her hair and her makeup she doesn't really care about the football or the content and it's and it's a shame and it's unfair because obviously you know the fact that I was presenting on camera I, ha I felt like I wanted to look a certain way but I just felt like it just made it made you stand out as just a bit too girly or frivolous you know or gossipy like if I was at if I was at a football match and I was chatting to another female presenter, I felt like the men would be like, oh, what's that gossip club over there? Whereas when the lads are all together, it's just banter. And I know it sounds really paranoid. And when I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, oh, that sounds so ridiculous. But I, I know I'm not wrong in that that is how things were seen um, because you could just feel the vibes, you know? And the fact that, you know, Martin Tyler and Jeff Shreves and all of that kind of gang, they came up to me one day and basically said pretty much, Congratulations, Alison, you're, you're in the club now. You've earned your stripes. We, we were a bit suspicious of you in the beginning, but, you know, you've been here years now and, you know, good luck kind of thing. And I, and I was like, I remember at the time feeling quite chuffed, but at the same time, what they're saying is we judged you because you were a girl. And, you know, I can't even be that disappointed in it because I feel that maybe we're all like that a little bit. Um, you definitely have to work a bit harder as a girl because if you make a mistake as a girl, people assume you don't know it. If you make a mistake as a boy, it's just like he made a mistake. In, in the military, like um, so new Marines that pass out of training and they go to unit, in a very similar way, they, they have to sort of prove their worth, as it were. They don't get ostracised or anything like that, but they still have to do... There still is a sort of acceptance period um, where... You know, the, the guys will be watching to see how they get on with their tactics and, you know, just to see it. You know, it'd be the same if a football player went to a club unless they were a superstar. They'd be like, right, what's he doing and how's he getting on? Do you think that it would, it, that, hap that would have happened the same as a new male presenter or was, was that different? No, I just definitely, I don't think the guys are judged in the same way. And I think 
Um, I often try and think about why that is. And I think the main thing is that there are so few of us, or there definitely were when I started out, that you are sort of held up uh, as kind of specimens against one another. It's one of, one of um, my colleagues actually noted it recently. And I thought, yeah, she's right. You, you're in this crazy competition with each other because there are so few of you. Um, whereas with men, it, you know, another man comes, it's just another man, it doesn't matter. Um, which is, it's a shame, isn't it, to sort of group people like that. But I think with the women, it's like, oh, there's another woman on the scene. Let's see how she is, how good she is. Does she know her stuff? Because you just wouldn't, you wouldn't do that with another guy because there were just so many. When you came back to England, what role did you, did you take up? What job did you have? So the, the role actually, when I first came back to England, it was a double role that was offered me. And that's why I came back, to be honest, because I really wanted to stay at Real Madrid. I was loving it there. But I was offered a job on Sky Sports News and Chelsea TV at the same time. Oh, I bet um, your dad was loving that. Oh, I mean, it was amazing. Like, he was dead proud, actually. Um, and it was really nice kind of having... I had a really different relationship with my dad suddenly because we'd never talked about football um, growing up, really, because he'd realised I wasn't that into it. And then suddenly... And now we have that great relationship, like, you know, Chelsea got through to the Champions League final and I rang him just to have a chat about it. And we we're chatting about all the players. And it's just a really nice thing that we didn't have for the first probably 15 years of my life. And now we've got. So that's really cool. Um, and then Sky Sports News was a, a mega thing as well, because, you know, that kind of made you almost like famous in the fact that people would come up to me in the street and recognize me, which I hadn't really had before. So it did feel like a really big deal job. Um, and it was definitely too soon for me as well. I wasn't good enough for it, to be honest. I was thrown in at the deep end with very little training. I think they thought I was better than I was because I'd been doing this stuff at Real Madrid and I was very comfortable with it. But that was just one element. That was Spanish football. And suddenly I was on Sky Sports News, expected to do cricket, golf, you know, score updates off the cuff when half of these sports I'd not even played. So I was way out of my depth. And once again... Uh, everyone else was better than me and I had to throw loads of hard work into it so it's like this this constant kind of thing in my life but it didn't ever make me want to give up it just made me want to work harder so how did you so how did you overcome that sky sports because I mean that's a that's a fairly big portfolio that you would have had to have learned in a small time what strategies did you use to like sort of break that down and and get through the the content that you needed to be upskilled enough to be able to prove your worth as, as it were just absolutely immersing myself in it so literally like listening to the radio constantly like having five live on having sky sports news on constantly and then I was also I was having to not only learn the sports element but also the presenting so at the same time my bosses were telling me you know you need to um, learn how to to smile you know the way that you come in when, when you're sort of greeted on Sky Sports News, you kind of, the, the, the credits roll and then you're up and then you kind of have to like look at your co-presenter and look back to screen. And it sounds really natural, but it's really unnatural. It's a really weird thing, you know? And when the other guy's talking, I'm like, well, what should I be doing? And my boss taught me that you look a bit at him, then you look down. And actually when you, when you watch people do it well, they look completely natural, but actually at the time it's not natural at all. Because if you think about how you act in normal conversation, when a person's talking, you actually stare at them the whole time. If you do that on live on TV, you look ridiculous. So, you've, you, so I'm learning all those skills, plus I'm learning all, everything else. Um, and yeah, just did tons and tons of reading. I just had a million tabs open all the time um, while I was on air. And oh, I mean, I must have looked, I was, was like a rabbit in headlights, to be honest, because I was just overwhelmed. There was just so much going on. Um, but yeah, you just, I did get better and I learned so much. It was such a steep learning curve and I didn't really switch off. You know, I'd go, I'd do my three hour shift on air. I'd come home and I'd watch it back always start to finish. How could I have done it better? And, and I suppose one of the things I always say is I, I never made the same mistake twice. I made plenty of mistakes, but I never made the same one twice. So you say you use the word that you immerse yourself into the, and you've said that a few times, which seems to be a trend, but there's a, there's a trade-off to happen when you do that. So there, can you explain some of the sacrifices that you've had to make to immerse yourself into be into your professional career? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that I've made a huge sacrifice for my career because my career has kind of become my life, I suppose. Like, you know, I've always been 
pretty sociable and I've gone out with my mates and stuff but I think all my mates always knew work always came first so you know whenever I would always be dropping out of parties or whatever it might be because there was a work shift or something I had to prepare for um and I think it just sort of became that way and it, and it did get I definitely think there was a stage where I worked a bit too hard and almost people just stopped inviting me because they, they always knew I'd just drop out um but then at the same time I, I remember at the time thinking like my job is just as fun as going out so what's the point like I, it's really bad I actually remember this one time when I turned down a work shift to hang out with my mates and go to the pub and it was just a normal great night which I would have normally loved but I remember thinking oh I wish I'd taken that shift at work which is terrible but because my my job is so fun or it's like you might be interviewing a footballer or something like that so I suppose over time I you know you have to find a, a, a good balance but there have definitely been periods throughout my life where I've put way too much into work at the expense of everything for sure. Oh, I think it's an important question to ask because the perception on people that are successful is oh, it's all right for them but actually when you when you scratch underneath the surface to find out why someone's successful you start then to realize that being professional is a sacrifice if you want to be highly professional, you have to make sacrifices that other people aren't willing to make to, to achieve what you've achieved. So it's all very well that someone might have a 2 million followers on Instagram and, and someone's earning lots of money doing X, Y, and Z or their business successful, but they would have made sacrifices. But an interesting point that you made about that you enjoyed your work and, and you um, would some, a lot of the time rather have been at work. I watched, um, watched a, a TED talk with a guy called Sir Ken Robinson. I don't know if you've come across him before, but he talks about, um, it's worth, worth looking at. He, taught, he's, um, he used to, he unfortunately passed away, um, re, uh, I think last year, and he's an education specialist and he talks about innovation and creativity. And he's got, he wrote a book about being in your element. And a couple of the factors that constitute you being in your element is that, you have a natural aptitude for something and you feel like that you can't distinguish yourself from your job and then you never work again. And it sounds like that that has been when you fell into presenting, that's you're in your element, hence the reason why you would rather work than, than maybe choose uh, uh, friends. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and it, it, I, you talk about the sacrifice and the sacrifice is constant. So it's like, you know, if you watch a football game, for example, so like last night's a really good example, actually, because it was my team Chelsea playing Real Madrid, massive game, um, you know, got through to the Champions League final. Now, I was on the radio that night and, you know, I'd, I'd love it. Like I can't, under normal circumstances, obviously we're in COVID and everything, but you'd, you'd have your mates around, you'd be drinking beers, you'd be having a great laugh and you'd be watching the game and enjoying it. But I take in football in such a different way. Like people wouldn't even believe the way that I watch football. It's with a notepad. It's, you know, I'm, I'm making notes constantly. I'm referencing stuff. And, um, and yet, like, I kind of get excited about the buzz of like knowing that that's how I'm going to do it. It's like, there's just... That, that is how I watch football now. Um, it's just very different. But yeah, I mean, sacrifices, there have been so many. I mean, the biggest sacrifice, the kids, I think, was a, the big thing that made me realise, like, I'd always sacrificed friends, but, you know, friends I can, I can see another day. And, you know, I've got a really nice circle of friends and they, they have all got great careers themselves and we all just kind of make it work. But I think the kids thing was really, really hard because I had to make massive sacrifices. Um, so tournaments you know going to a world cup being away for six weeks leaving your kid at home for six weeks that has been really hard and a massive massive decision and I never ever thought I, I mean I actually had like physical pining I was like I remember thinking actually at times like how on earth must it be if you're in a job that keeps you away from a family or if you're in prison or I was having all kinds of crazy thoughts about because I was just missing them so much. It was like this physical ache. How old, um, what ages were they at that particular moment? So the the very first big sacrifice, I suppose, was the Euros um, in 2016. So my little boy was about three. And I, I guess I guess as they get older, maybe it's going to be easier, but they'll be, or maybe it'll be harder, but in different ways kind of thing. They'll just, no, because things. they'll just be able to guilt trip you more. That's all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think, I tell you what, I tell you what was the hardest part. So... 
for my little boy, it was really weird because they just don't really understand. So it's like suddenly, you know, and I'm with them like every single day, playing, 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 I'm mummy. And then suddenly I'm gone. That was really hard. And it's like, um, and when I was busy, when I, like, like you say, when I was in my element and when I kind of threw myself into it, I didn't allow myself to really think about them. And I just, or about him, because it was just one at the time. So I just went to work and I just got on with it. But then you obviously come back in the evening and you're in your hotel room and there was a little cot in my room where they put a little Winnie the Pooh blanket because he was coming out to visit me. And I would literally stare at that cot every night and I'd be like, oh, I'm really missing out here. Um, but the time that was like the worst, worst, and I just, I, I still don't know how I did it, to be honest. Um, it was a really big decision for me and my husband. So the World Cup, and I'd always wanted to work a World Cup. My daughter was nine months old and I was literally like, you know, with her every day, like proper stay at home mum. And she was a baby, she was a little cuddly babe in arms, you know. And so I went away and I did the World Cup knowing that during that period, I would miss her first steps. And that was really tough because what I left behind was like a baby. And then at the end of the tournament, six weeks later, what greeted me at the airport was like a little girl running. And that was really tough. And I. I don't, I don't know whether anyone listening this, everyone listening to this will understand it and I can't quite put it into words, but it was like someone I knew, like the, like my own part of my own body looked so unfamiliar for like a second. I was like, it was just horrible. And I, I just kept having to say to myself, like, you know, it was your decision. You made that decision. You know, it, you have to live with it, but it, it does kind of come back to guilt trip you. But then hilarious now, she doesn't have any recollection of it whatsoever. Um, but it was hard, it was really hard for me and it felt like a really long time. There was about two or three days on that trip where I cried and I just thought, what have I done? Like, but there was no reversing it by that point. And, and actually it, like, it's something that I've, I've, I've had a chat with loads of other mums about it since. And it's funny because at the very end of the tournament you say, never gonna do it again, can't do it again. And then of course it's like an adrenaline buzz. And by the time, cause these tournaments are two and four years apart, by the time the next one comes around, you're like desperate for the rush of being on the tournament. And you're like, yeah, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And then you, you go through that cycle again. And it's, it's so funny. Um, but I do actually think, so my kids now are seven and four. And I actually think I would feel fairly comfortable about it now because I think that FaceTime is so brilliant. Like I know you say, sometimes it's hard to kind of do that and some some people actually did give me that advice they said don't phone home don't don't come and meet halfway through a tournament it'll kill you um but I I don't know I think I can kind of do that now I think the hardest part was the touch it was a physical element of the touch of this chubby baby and um and yeah just I made some big sacrifices I mean crikey I'd been breastfeeding not that long before and I I'd kind of started like weaning her off it with thoughts of this tournament which sounds so incredibly selfish um, when you think about it but it was just you know a, a big family decision that we made and a financial decision as well do you feel a lot of pressure i was uh, let me let me rephrase that question I, i've spoken to um someone else on one of my on one of my podcasts about the the mum professional balance and the pressure that is whether it's perceived or of external about trying to be the, the, the you know, a good mum, which is a pressure in itself, whatever a good mum looks like, um, <laughs> because, you know, and also trying to have a, a highly professional career and not jeopardise the both. Do you ever find yourself in a little bit of turmoil about which one to, whether you're doing the right thing and either, or whether you're doing one too much and the other? Like, how does that, how, how do you manage that? Yeah, constantly. And um, I came up with this thing that I sort of <laughs> invented myself. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I don't know whether anyone else has ever spoken about this, but I, I basically just sort of redefined time in my head because I feel like um, time is given to us like a, a daily basis, right? And we feel like we have to do things in a day. And for me, I sometimes can't be a brilliant mum and I like doing everything well, but I feel like I can't be a brilliant mum and a brilliant worker in a day, in the same day, I can't do it. And I always just sort of thought I'd judge myself per week instead. 
which sounds a bit weird, but it just helped me a bit. So I'd be like, you know, there are some days of a week where I literally have to put a lot into work and I won't necessarily be such a good mum that day. But then the next day I will just go crazy being the best mum ever and feel that I've balanced it out. And I sort of do it with everything with exercise as well. Like I'm not one of those people, I don't have time or I don't make time to exercise every day. But, and I'd feel guilty if I tried to fit all these things in a day and just get it all wrong. So I just, I do it per week and I'm like, right, so this week I feel kind of content because I've done a little bit of mumming and a little bit of work, a little bit of exercise. Um, rather than trying to just be brilliant every day, which I think is just ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, I'm constantly juggling all the time. And I definitely think both things have suffered a little bit, for sure. Like I definitely, if I wasn't a mum, I'd be a lot better in my profession. Um, but it's something I've chosen I love, and I love being a mum more than I ever thought I would. Um, and so, yeah, I think you just have to accept it. And I, and I think I have accepted it now as well. And I feel a lot more, I don't feel that mum guilt anymore because I'm, I've kind of been a bit more accepting of it. Um, and I know why I'm doing it now as well. I love that about the planning over a week rather than a day, because we always look at trying to attack the day and what we're going to do today or what have you done today. It's never this week. And it just gives you that sort of overdraft that you need just to, and a little bit of latitude to be able to do what you need to do. But I always found that trying to be, when I, because I, I get the same thing. Like I, I, I'm quite hard on myself about whether I'm a good dad or not. And I always reflect and say and think to myself, did I do that well enough or I shouldn't have done that to the kid? And, I, and, I, and sometimes I'm a little bit too harsh on myself. But for me to be good, a good dad, I need to have work to make me balance. And, I, and, and, and this is nothing against the kids, but if I just had the kids, part, part of me would not, would not be there because I need to have something else, not because they're not enough. Totally. And, yeah. I, and I, don't, that, I don't want it to come, I, I don't know whether I'm explaining this right, but I don't want it to come across like they're not enough because they absolutely are. But that my DNA is made up of a split of things. And to have that balance and that equilibrium, it needs to be there. If but that you makes can sense. Be so, it makes total sense. And you can be so much better. And I find that I am so much better when I'm doing those other things that give me my buzz like you say like when you're in your element like honestly like lockdown was really tough because I, I like being the fun mum like I like getting down on my hands and knees and playing and really enjoy it like my own mum was the same like she never played at me she played with me and that really stuck with me and I always want to be that person so like when I'm at the farm I don't want to be just like pointing out the chickens for them I want to be like excited myself but I can't do that every day and the reason why I found lockdown really hard is because I'm like I can't be that fun mum all the time every time and so I'm going to feel guilty um but I can be that fun mum when I've done the things that make me happy as well. So I do, I totally get your point. And I think like, you know, it's almost like the pie, isn't it? And you have to have all the different segments of the pie to be good. And it's like, I'll be a much better mum when I've done all the other stuff that makes me happy as well. And I, and I think overall as well, what I, I try, I struggle with is just being kind to yourself in that, in that respect, trying to just give yourself a bit of a break and the you know the, the the woman that I spoke to before, Helen, on one of the other shows, she she said that you've got to be, just be give yourself a bit of a break. You know, we're human at the end of the day, and that 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 pie analogy is quite interesting because I suppose everyone will have different volumes and segments of of that that makes up their sort of circle. It's re it's really um it's, it's good food for thought, I think certainly. Be good, wouldn't it? It'd be interesting to get different people to sit down and and see their different pies but that's the thing like that was my whole point I couldn't put that pie into one day it had to be over a week uh, otherwise it just it wasn't going to happen but yeah I, I often think about that I'm like has anyone else ever spoken about that it's not like I think I've invented it or anything but it's just like as soon as as soon as I allowed myself to do that suddenly I felt so much more relaxed because I know I know some young girls that are really body obsessed and they have to work out every day and if they don't work out they feel terrible about it and I was like, you know, I don't want to do that to myself, whether it's with mothering, whether it's with exercise or whatever it is, just don't want to do that to myself. Like life's supposed to be fun. So, you know. When you come back to England, you, you said that you were one of the first or one of the only females in, in, like the, in the room full of, full of men. Has that dynamic changed? And if it has, have you ever found yourself in like a mentoring role to other women that wanted to follow the same profession? 
yeah, it's really weird, actually. I don't know quite how this happens. And I don't know if other people feel it as well. But like, I didn't kind of like the role of mentor because I feel like my career is only in its infancy. It's funny. I feel like there's so many things that I still want to do. And, you know, I feel like the second you become a mentor, suddenly it's almost suggesting like your own career is over kind of thing. But it did sort of happen like that, where I suppose young girls started gravitating towards me and, and sort of saying, oh, we, you know, we'd really like to do the kind of things that you've done. Can you give me some advice and some tips? And um, so I started helping people out. And then, yeah, suddenly I find myself kind of mentoring a few different people and just giving my tips and advice but yet it's weird because I still think I'm I've I don't know I've only just started this career but I haven't I've been I've been doing it for about 20 years so it's really funny um, but I do enjoy it and I, lo- I like giving my tips because I just think it's been really hard along the way and I might as well share those things because it's like if you learn that the hard way then it's not that fun and like there were definitely times that I think I've toughened up as a person I I was quite a girly girl like I said I was quite a soft girl I suppose I cry a lot and I was quite sensitive and now I'm a lot harder and I don't necessarily like that I don't think it's fair that a career can change your personality I don't think it's very nice um and so I, I don't want it to put off girls we want nice kind people in this profession as well we don't just want hard-nosed journalists who are always trying to dig the deepest stories do you know what I mean like you want um you want a sort of a, a a range of personalities and I feel like a lot of the softer ones who care a bit more might just fall out because it's just too hard it really is hard um and that's one thing I want to say I mean I I'm on social media a lot and like so many people come to me and say oh love your job it looks brilliant I love football they say I love football I could definitely do this job and I always think like it's just not enough to just love football like we all love football right like everyone loves football how are you going to set yourself apart from every single single other person that loves football you don't want to be too hard or patronizing but it's like there's got to be something else it can't just be the love of football right yeah, it's that it's that man in the in the arena quote again. You stand on at the outside of the arena, looking in, commentating. You are picking fault or praise or whatever it is, saying, "Oh, I'd love to do that." Or if I if I was the manager of that football club, I would do. But then get put in that position, you run a mile because actually you're not in a, in a, in that that space to be able to go into the arena to do to do the business. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's something that must be quite quite um good for you to receive those those comments but frustrating as well because you're like you just don't even realize how much hard work's going in here yeah and I suppose like when you've been doing it a really long time one of the things that you end up doing is making it look easy because it, it you've learned the hard way right and so you know in the beginning I used to make my job look very complicated because I was proving myself so I'd I'd do these long convoluted questions to kind of prove that I knew about football and I always remember actually the head of ITV saying to me you don't have to do that and I say yeah but I I kind of want people to know that I know my stuff and he's like the best interviewers just keep it simple and so over time you obviously keep it simpler and simpler and simpler and so the, 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 the bad thing about that is that someone young say a 14 15 year old is watching someone asking the simplest of questions, literally, yeah, no, and thinking, well, I can do this, but that's, but that's the whole point. It's like, you, you need to have gone through that journey kind of thing. And that's, I suppose, what I'm trying to say to them. But usually they contact me on social media. So you get about, uh, what is it, 32 characters to respond. Well, that's not so, a bad thing. It saves you time. Yeah, exactly. Where do you see uh, women's football at the moment um, and where do you see it moving to in the, in the future? Do you, re- do you feel there is real impetus behind moving the, the women's game um, on at the rate that it needs to be? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been incredible over the last decade. It's, we've seen so much change. I mean, the fact that Chelsea ladies, for example, Chelsea women's, they're called now, um, are in a Champions League final and, and BT Sport have agreed to show that free to air. There's been so much more investment in it. And like, you know, we always say, don't we, like, you know, you can't call two things equal when when one of them hasn't had the investment. To, and you need to kind of invest in something for it to sort of bear fruit, I suppose. So we are seeing it. Um, some people might say that it should have happened before, but I, I think it does, it, it does take a long time to kind of get into people's consciousness. And 
the fact that it is, I think it will come on leaps and bounds now. I think the pandemic kind of obviously held things back a bit. Um, it's funny because I'm a woman who works in football, but I actually don't uh, work in women's football. Um, and and it's, it's odd actually, because I do get a lot of requests to come and speak about women's football. And of course it's gathering momentum. And it's great now that actually part of my job is to talk about women's football just because it's football and we, you know, we all have to talk about it. Um, so it's, it just shows that it is, um, it's becoming just, yeah, the norm basically, rather than something that's kind of given it a second thought. And there does need to be more investment, but I think we will see that growing as, as time goes on for sure. Yeah, it's great to see the opportunity that's being provided now. And, and you know, if my girls said to me, Dad, I can't do that, and why? Because because I'm a, like, I'm a, I'm a female, I'll be like, right, hold on, let's, let's go and sort this out. So, you know, it's good yeah. to see, it's good to see that the opportunities are there and, and the investments is, is finally starting to, uh, to flourish because what you'll see is the games being shown on the TV from all sports. And so I'll have it on the, the TV in the house. So they, they, it's that subconscious that they're constantly seeing um, women's sport on the TV, which is more um, available to watch now, which is fantastic because that, that subconsciously will motivate them as a norm, which is great. Definitely. And sorry, one of the things I've noticed as well that's really interesting that's never really happened before, and I don't know if you've noticed it, but I'll be reading an article, I'll just like read a headline or I'll read something, and then I'll have to actually go back and think, oh, hang on, is that is that women's football or men's football? Because they're, they're starting to be treated so equally that actually you might stumble upon a, uh, an article about the women's game and, and not realise because it's not hidden, basically. So, you know, so that's a great thing. So what's next? Yeah, so... One of the things that I, I love, like I love interviewing people and I'm really interested in people's journeys. And as you, you know, as we discussed, I, I did psychology. I'm really interested in the human mind. And so, and obviously I get to interview footballers all the time and I'm so bored of their cliche questions and answers. And we've heard it a thousand times and they're bored and everyone's bored, but it's part of what we have to do. And so for a really long time now, I've been asking to try and do my own set of interviews um, with players and and managers and and it's been really hard actually because um everything's about money and investment and rights holders and etc etc but finally i've managed to get um a production company backing me to do a brand new series that i'm really excited about that's going to come out next year um, at the moment it's called the man behind the footballer but i might change the name but basically it's me speaking with footballers and managers and we're not talking about football so it's going to be about what drives them, what motivates them, kind of the conversation we've had today um, about their journeys. But like, crucially, we're just not going to talk about football because we've heard all that. You can find all of that out there. Um, and I just really care about them and how they got to where they are and um, some of the, the things that we might not know about them. And I'm really, really excited about doing that. So um, that should be out. I, I want to produce it really nicely and really carefully. And I want it to have like longevity. So it won't be about getting a, a headline or a news line. So it, it's not going to come out quickly. Even once I've done it, I'm going to spend a long, long time producing it. So hopefully you'll see that at some point on screens of, I don't know, I mean, maybe even globally as well. We're going to try and sell it to a few different companies, but I'm really, really, really excited about that. So that's a, that's a big one for me. I mean, I love, I just love my freelance work in football. I want to continue doing it. I love hosting. So to, to host a show, phone-ins, talk shows, whatever it might be, um, that kind of thing I still want to keep doing. Um, but I've been really enjoying doing podcasts and producing more sort of something that I could be a bit prouder of as well, rather than something that just makes the news for a day. So you've got your own podcast as well, is that right? Yeah, so... I, I, it's really a recent thing. I just started it in lockdown, to be honest. And it's, it's a similar idea of just like learning about people's journeys. It's, it's called Talent Takes Time. And it was kind of born out of the idea that a lot of people ask me what it takes to get into this job. And I always tell them it's a, it, it takes time and it's, it's practice and it's the journey and everything. So it's me having conversations with people within the industry, basically. Um, so that's out currently. Um, and I'm going into a second series of that. And I'm just... Um, I'm moving out actually towards athletes and I'm going to be interviewing people in different different fields as well, not just TV presenting, because um, I just think it's quite an interesting concept. And there's been a lot, a lot of um, stories that resonate no matter what kind of area you're in. So I'm going to carry on with that as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what 
the future holds but I just love I love presenting and I love football so hopefully those two can just continue gelling oh that sounds amazing and I I'm going to uh subscribe to your podcast because it's exactly the sort of thing that I'm interested in um and I was really happy to find out that you were doing that sort of topic and the the um the production sounds interesting to find out what's going on behind the actual the glitz and glam really of what the individual is uh, is saying so but thank you very much for coming on the show i really appreciate it and uh from what you've been saying and and the things that i've read it's it's about i think you probably will disagree but you've been a bit of a pioneer in women's certainly in in the media and certainly in um presenting within in a male dominated environment which is fantastic to see and it's great because that sets a tone for you know young girls like mine to have uh, more options as they as they grow so thank you very much for that oh pleasure it's, it's quite funny isn't it the whole pioneer thing because it's like you just you have a job and you just do it I suppose um and there are there are so many women that sort of came before me that definitely had a much harder job of it than than I did because I was really lucky that I was given the kind of the backing and the acceptance like I said when I was at Real Madrid I didn't even notice that I was a girl but like I don't know colleagues of mine like Jackie Oatley being the first female commentator on match of the day I mean that kind of pressure there was absolutely no way I probably wouldn't have stayed in it if I'd had the pressure that she was under so we've kind of got to take our hats off to people like her and and you know women way before her as well um, but yeah, it's just, I just hope that there can be a constant stream of women in this so that, like you say, young girls like yours and mine um, can like see it and believe it and want to do it hopefully as well. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's going to be the case. Thanks so much again for coming cool. on. No worries. Pleasure. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast channel for updates on new releases. And why not leave a review on your podcast provider and follow us on Instagram on the at Can't Can Will page to show your support. Thanks, legends.